How Court Nominations Polarize Interest Groups and Voters, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Interest groups on both sides were ready for battle when President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. As Republicans vote to confirm her, how will voters respond? The process is now immediately polarized by partisanship, but that's the product of a long struggle led by interest groups to polarize the debate and make voters care. This week, I talked to Jonathan Kostelik of Princeton University about his new Journal of Law and Courts article with Charles Cameron, Cody Gray, and Jiquan Park, From Textbook Pluralism to Modern Hyperpluralism. He finds that interest groups have increasingly started early in nomination battles, especially conservative groups which mobilized more recently, with groups now fighting over nominee ideology rather than qualifications. I also talked to Alex Betis of the University of Houston about his new paper with Elizabeth Seamus, The Supreme Court as an Electoral Issue. He finds that Supreme Court nominations have become a voting issue, but that Republican voters perceive judicial nominations as more important and prioritize them more in primary elections. The big partisan fight over Barrett seems inevitable now, but Kaselik says it's the product of a long history. They found big changes over time in which groups mobilize and how they do so. First, we find a overall growth of interest group involvement in Supreme Court over time, beginning in 1930 and tracing the changes to the present. And in particular, we found that interest group involvement in Supreme Court nominations was relatively rare in the first part of that period, so from, say, 1930 to 1970. Um, But over time, it's changed to the point where it's now routine with groups on both sides immediately mobilizing whenever there's a new Supreme Court nomination. In addition to this overall change, we found that the types of groups that tend to mobilize have changed. So early on when groups mobilized, it tended to be groups like labor unions on the left and anti-communist groups on the right. So kind of maybe what you would call traditional groups that, that mobilized around the middle of the century. The middle period of around 1970 to 1986 saw the emergence of civil rights groups being activated in nomination politics, groups like the NAACP and the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. And the last few decades have seen the emergence of groups that tend to focus on social issues and what you might call identity politics, in particular groups that do abortion-related lobbying. And finally, when we look at the overall ideological orientation of the groups, early on, most mobilizing groups tended to be of a liberal orientation. But importantly, conservative groups are now either equally or even more likely to mobilize for modern-day nominees. Third, we found that the type of tactics that groups tend to use has changed in important ways. So early on, groups tended to use what we call inside tactics or inside lobbying such as testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee or directly lobbying senators. Over time, the choice of tactics moved towards the heavy use of what we call outside or grassroots tactics, such as directly advertising for or against a nominee. Next, we found that the timing of mobilization changed. So until the 1980s or so, the timing of interest group mobilization was evenly spaced out across the span of a nomination. So that is from the time when the president announces a nominee to the time when the nomination ends, usually in confirmation, but sometimes in failure. And since the 1980s, however, most mobilization comes early on in this nomination period, even before the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings are held. And so thus, the picture in the modern period is one of what we call immediate 
mobilization. And finally, we find that the ideology of a nominee now predicts mobilization better than the qualifications of the nominee, which, for example, can be affected by whether the nominee suffers a scandal or not. So in the earlier period, qualifications tended to matter more. Now we find that uh, suggestive evidence that ideology matters more. And so we put, when we put this all together, we conclude that the world of interest group politics and Supreme Court nominations changed from a one where few groups opportunistic, opportunistically mobilized against a particular nominee to a world where mobilization against every nominee is now routine and intense with gr groups on both sides eager to join the fray immediately. They use media coverage to understand who was mobilized and how they argued. What we did is that we relied on newspaper reporting in both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. And so what we did is that we read and coded every article in both of those papers on every nominee between 1930 and 2017, so a little more than 50 nominees. And then we hand-coded various measures about both the groups themselves, so are they of a liberal orientation or conservative orientation, the type of issues they, they care about, and so forth. And then we also coded their, their tactics. You know, this isn't necessarily the first best solution. Some other papers have relied on surveys of different groups for particular nominees, but that wasn't really an option for us. So we're fairly confident, though, that relying on newspaper coverage, while it misses some types of particular interest group activity in a particular nomination, uh, we're confident that it's sufficient to capture the most important big changes over time. And we also can say that the both times, the Los Angeles Times and the New York, New York Times, paint the same overall picture. So we're not depending on idio, uh, anything idiosyncratic about coverage in either paper to reach our conclusions. They found that ideological extremism now matters most. To measure nominee ideology, we use a standard measure that's based on the well-known nominate scores for presidents and members of Congress, and we kind of use those to capture a proxy for every nominee. So what we did is to see how that relates to the propensity or the likelihood of mobilization, we then took the absolute value of this measure and tested whether more extreme ideology, so that is scores farther away from a score of zero, where zero kind of means a perfectly moderate nominee on the nominate scale. We then tested whether more extreme ideology meant that we were more likely to see groups mobilized during their nominations. And when we tested this, we found that ideology seemed to matter less during earlier decades because it seems that mobilization was more opportunistic based on the non-ideological characteristics of the nominee. So more specifically, groups seemed to wait to mobilize if, say, a nominee scandal emerged, as was the case with President Nixon's nominees in the 70s, Clement Hainsworth and Harold Carswell. Right. Again, so the overall picture here is not one of intense fighting every time there's a every single time there's a nominee, but more kind of waiting to see what type of nominee we get, which means that ideology wasn't going to necessarily be a strong predictor. Over time, that changes well, where now groups are more likely to mobilize for any given nominee. Right. So the baseline propensity to mobilize is higher. But the data suggests that more extreme nominees tended to get to get even higher levels of mobilization these days. So there are two reasons, a couple of reasons at least that could be going on. And some of these are maybe confounding from a methodological perspective. So one, we know that judicial ideology among a justice is now more predictable than it used to be. 
So in other words, right, we kind of now have a better sense of what a nominee is going to do on the court, which means that the stakes in some sense are higher because, right, there's less variance in how the justices perform. Another factor is that the overall, we know that the nominees of both parties tend to be more extreme than they used to. And otherwise, in other words, right, the polarization that exists among all American elites these days extends to nominees as well. And so when you're getting both more mobilization overall and more extreme nominees at the same time, they tend to go together. Part of that was due to broader interest group mobilization, but identity groups are still more active than business. Overall, we know from the broader interest group literature, that the number of interest groups exploded beginning in the 1970s. And so the rise we see in nomination mobilization around that time fits perfectly with this story. In other words, the overall trajectory of more groups becoming involved in in Supreme Court nomination fights fits perfectly with the overall growth in the number of groups in American politics around that time. But on the other hand, when we look at the types of groups these days that are more likely to participate in Supreme Court nomination fights, groups like public interest groups and identity groups are probably overrepresented in mobilization politics compared to their number in the overall population of interest groups. Now, part of this discrepancy is due, we think, to the fact that Supreme Court nomination fights now set around cases such as Roe v. Wade, that these groups deeply care about, so identity groups and, say, abortion-related groups. But at the same time, it's something of a puzzle why business groups like the Chamber of Commerce, which we do think are heavily involved on the amicus side, have not been very active in Supreme Court nominations, given how important the court is to issues surrounding economic uh, regulation. So the question of which groups tend to mobilize in particular venues in terms of lobbying the court directly or trying to get uh, involved in nomination fights is something that we're continuing to study going down the road. Groups have enlarged the fights, making them big public debates. Inside tactics are those that are kind of Washington, D.C. based. Right? If you think about traditional lobbying and from kind of a new stat perspective, right, this is groups kind of going to senators, presenting them information, telling them they should decide one way or the other. Outside and grassroots tactics, as the name suggests, means kind of going around senators directly by trying to have a presence that either mobilizes the public directly or indirectly. So grassroots campaign would be trying to get public opinion to change. A outside tactic would be using television or internet advertising these days, again, to try to shape the direction of the nomination. So again, to summarize our overall finding, we find a large shift away from inside tactics early on in our, our in our time period and moving towards the use of uh, inside and or grassroots tactics. And so the natural question is why of this shift? So we can't say for sure, but we think that one factor is that groups have multiple goals when they mobilize and outside tactics may, might support these goals better. So foremost, groups may hope either to help a nominee they support get confirmed or prevent a nominee they oppose from being confirmed. But statistically, at least, we know that most nominees do end up being confirmed, in fact. So in knowing this, groups may also use nomination fights to do what's called organizational maintenance, right? So trying to promote their organization, maybe get some funds. And so advertising serves the goal of like, telling your donors and supporters that you are in the fight, right? You are in the arena. And so outside tactics such as TV and internet advertising may work particularly well in this regard. 
In addition, if we think about what senators care about on a nomination fight, we know from some other research that senators' votes on Supreme Court nominees tends to track pretty well with public opinion in their home state. So outside tactics that seek to directly influence public opinion may be the best chance to affect the confirmation likelihood for a given nominee, even if success is the most likely outcome. Betis and Seamus say that enlarged fight has made voters care, but they found that Republicans see nominations as more important. It matters for voters on both sides in general elections, but also in Republican primaries. Our paper analyzes how the Supreme Court and judicial nominations can be seen as an important electoral issue. And as a part of our paper, we've conducted three separate studies. The first just asks a very basic question, and that is, do people find judicial nominations to be an important electoral issue? So when we asked them about uh, judicial nominations on surveys, what did they say? For that, we, we found that, you know, judicial nominations are kind of a, an average issue to, to voters. They don't view them as particularly important, but they don't view them as particularly unimportant either. And then we wanted to look at, well, what types of voters are more likely to view judicial nominations as important? And we found that Republicans are especially likely to find judicial nominations as important. And other groups like independents are likely to view them as less important. So this sort of builds into a narrative about Trump's 2016 election, where it was really kind of seen as judicial nominations being able to mobilize support for him. And that seems to be maybe partly correct. And in the second study, then, we wanted to examine whether judicial nominations can influence voting behavior, right? So here, we're leveraging the confirmations of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to see if individuals held their incumbent senators accountable for their votes. And in the context of that study, we find that individuals who are incongruent with how their senators voted are more likely to vote against them in the midterm elections. So they're less likely to vote for their senators when they disagree with them or their votes on the Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch confirmation votes. And then our third study, we wanted to analyze whether people make choices of candidates in primary context based on information provided about judicial nominations. So we designed an experiment which gave individuals choices between two co-partisans to kind of mimic a primary election. And in this context, the main thing we wanted to vary uh, to, to our participants was the number one issue that the candidate would be focusing on in the primary election, what their number one issue priority was. And, and to capture judicial nominations, we included information about the individual wanting to confirm conservative Supreme Court nominees if they were a Republican, because this matches best with what their agenda would be. And for Democratic candidates, we had it list that they would block conservative Supreme Court nominees, right, to kind of mimic their position. And what we found is that Republicans really liked to choose the individuals who said they would confirm Supreme Court nominees, confirm conservative Supreme Court nominees. And that was actually the most popular issue for all the the issues we displayed, and we displayed many issues that were kind of standard with the Republican platform, such as building a border wall, decreasing taxes, and things like this. But it seemed like cons confirming conservative Supreme Court nominees was the most popular issue there. And for the Democrats, it was actually the opposite finding. So blocking conservative nominees was a very unpopular issue for, for Democratic voters. And we think, you know, this could be for many reasons. One is just that the timing of our experiment experiment coincided with a context where the Republicans had already confirmed Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. So it seems like that would be a losing issue, right? It seems like they would be bad at blocking conservative Supreme Court nominees. And another explanation could be that 
it's it, it is a matter of process and right there's a kind of a an uneasiness with just kind of reckless blocking legislation engaging in that sort of behavior is viewed negatively but to kind of get a better grapple on this we need to do further studies on how democrats respond they looked at the importance of court nominations relative to other issues to voters we looked at survey research that basically it asked voters to rate how important an individual item was on a four-point scale and they were asked a broad range of issues I think each uh, voter was asked eight different issues. And as you highlight, there's a potential problem with everyone just saying this issue is extremely important to me. So they may just be engaging in some sort of expressive responding that they want us to be aware that they really think politics is important. So to get around this, we kind of created a new measure, which we call relative importance. And what we do is we take the average of all the uh, responses on the other items so if they were always saying this is extremely important or, or rating it a four, their average would be four. So say if they only rated judicial nominations as somewhat important, that would be a two on the scale. And we take two and subtract it from four and their relative importance score would be negative two. So relative to their average issue, they view judicial nominations as less important. So we think having this relative measure of importance is a little bit better than just this do you think this issue is important, right? Because it kind of takes it from their baseline level of how they view issues. And they found it mattered for voting in Senate elections. We find that the people who are congruent with their senators' vote on these judicial nominations are more likely to vote for them. And this is especially strong for the individuals who are most politically knowledgeable, right? These people who are politically knowledgeable probably have a good sense of how their senator voted. And those who are less politically knowledgeable, the effect is much smaller for them. They probably are unaware of how their senator voted, so it's unlikely to matter much in their vote choice. We also found some evidence that it's a a stronger stronger effect for Republican identifiers. So for Republicans, it really seemed like they wanted it to be congruent with both nominations before they went ahead and would vote for the incumbent senator. But for Democrats, it seems like they were more likely to just accept one congruent vote on the nomination and then go ahead and vote further. So it seems like there's a stronger effect for Republicans. The effect of judicial confirmation votes is at least comparable to major policy votes. Outside of the items that ask individuals how they would vote on the judicial confirmation votes, they also ask them how they would vote on other roll call type that the Senate also heard. And one of them was a cloture vote on a 20-week abortion ban. So the senators were voting to pass a a 20-week ban on abortion. So after 20 weeks, there'd be a total ban on abortion. The Senate never voted for this uh, on the merits. They only voted on a cloture vote to overcome the filibuster. And what we did was we took the congruence between how a voter responded to that and how their senator actually voted and compared the effect of that congruence to the effect of judicial confirmation votes. And we find that the effect of judicial confirmation votes is much stronger than the congruence with the 20-week abortion ban vote. So that kind of shows us that this has some baseline level of salience. So the 20-week abortion ban cloture vote is a little bit more technical. So it's not a direct comparison to say, oh, this is just as salient as abortion, but it shows that it's at least kind of perceived as more important than some issues. This section didn't make the paper, but we also explore congruence with uh, the Senate voted to issue sanctions against Russia. It seems that it is an important issue when we compare it to other potential roll call votes. Again, those aren't necessarily the most salient items that the Senate is considering, but it does give us some baseline. A survey experiment Betis and Seamus conducted found that confirming judicial nominees was very important to Republican primary voters. 
what we did in our study, it's called a conjoint experiment, where we kind of generate profiles of hypothetical candidates. And it gives the individual taking the experiment a lot of different information about candidates. So things about, you know, their age, their background, their education, prior experience. And then most interesting for us was the number one issue priority. So the issue they'd focus most on if elected. And here, we basically just took a lot of issues from the Republican Party platform and put them into the survey. So things about cutting taxes, you know, cutting government spending, building a border wall with Mexico, just kind of the standard Republican platform. And then we added in two components about judicial nominations. One was just confirming judicial nominees. The second was confirming conservative uh, judicial nominees. And what we find is that Republican voters really responded to the item about confirming conservative Supreme Court nominees. There was less response to just the general confirming judicial nominees. Uh, So maybe there is an ideological dimension to this, or it requires an ideological prime to make the judiciary salient. And I think to maybe push back against criticisms that this is just a sign of partisan loyalty is the other issues that we uh, presented to our participants were also kind of standard fair Republican items that would uh, show that they're loyal to the Republican Party and its causes. Kostelik says it's hard to tell whether interest groups were the main cause of polarizing these debates. The general question of how much interest groups contribute to the current uh, polarized environment that we see is a difficult one to answer concretely, concretely, because there's a ton of endogeneity or circularity here, right? So did, did groups help cause the polarization or are they simply reacting to it and trying to benefit, benefit from a polarized environment around nominations? And so generally, we think it's quite plausible that interest groups have contributed to the overall polarization of the process to the extent that we know that senators are, at least in part, influenced generally by organized interest. But at the same time that we know that the public as well has become more polarized in terms of its opinion on Supreme Court nominees, so it's hard to disentangle those two factors. Some conservatives claim that the Bork nomination changed everything, but that's only somewhat true. One thing we can say about the nomination of Robert Borg is that he's certainly a huge outlier in the terms of the number of groups that mobilize. But at the same time, we know that overall interest group participation and nominations really starts to increase around 1970 with President Nixon's nominees. So I think it's a mistake to say that Bork's nomination changed everything, as is often contended. In other words, it's not that there was no mobilization beforehand, and then all of a sudden groups mobilized to defeat Bork, and that's kind of been the status quo since. At the same time, right, it's often claimed that Bork was a paradigm shift in terms of a nominee being defeated uh, and based solely on his ideology. And certainly, Bork was highly qualified, and all of the fight, the, the, the main opposition to him was ideologically based. But again, it's not true that ideology had never played a role in Supreme Court nominations. At the start of our data, John Parker was defeated in part because he was seen as being anti-union. He had also said, said said some racist things that generated Democratic opposition. And even Hainsworth Hainsworth and Carswell, uh, two of Richard Nixon's nominees who were defeated in the early 1970s, they were mainly opposed on on grounds of of qualifications, but they were also seen as somewhat ideologically extreme by many Democratic senators. So again here, the overall picture is that Bork is obviously important and stands out uh, because he was defeated largely on ideological grounds. But again, Supreme Court nominations have always had a bit of ideological dimension to them, so it's not like Bork came out of nowhere. 
But he says conservative mobilization by groups may have made Republican voters care more than they used to. Conservative groups have caught up to liberal groups in terms of the overall amounts of mobilization that they do on Supreme Court nominee. In addition, while we, we ourselves don't have data on this, I think it's likely that conservative groups like the Judicial Crisis Network now spend a lot more money on particular nomination fights than their liberal counterparts. And so, and so to the extent that mass public opinion follows elite public opinion, which we think is plausible on many domains, right, it's certainly plausible that Republican voters may prioritize Supreme Court nominations more in highly than Democratic voters have. Of course, things might be different following the block nomination of Merrick Garland and the current nomination fight uh, around uh, Amy Coney Barrett. But again, empirically, it's tricky to know how much all of this has trickled down in terms of nominations being an electoral issue. And so that's an active area of research that I think we should be engaged in. Betis agrees conservative group mobilization has likely influenced Republican voters, and he says it's unclear whether liberal groups can do the same. The fact that Republicans now care more about judicial nominations and kind of issues relating to the Supreme Court come from a lot of different avenues. So there's really been a strategic movement within the Republican Party uh, since really the 1970s to kind of entrench conservative judges within the judiciary, building out of the, the Warren Court in a period of great uh, judicial liberalism, conservatives wanted to start to counter that. So they developed a, a stronger strategy for getting conservatives on the court. And this elite discourse kind of filters down to the mass public, right? So we know that how the public responds to a lot of things, uh, they take uh, cues from the elites in their party, and then they basically formulate their opinions based on that. We also see that in the context of the Senate, uh, there's one study by Martin Zillis that showed Conservatives are more likely to introduce court curbing legislation, so they're focusing on judicial matters more so in the Senate as well. And I think through all of this, it kind of just filters down to the mass public. So that's how I think the Republicans and the mass public became more likely to see these issues as important. And whether Democrats are, are catching up is kind of a, I think, a difficult question to answer because we see that there's a lot of fluctuations in how the Democrats kind of view judicial nominations. When we look back to the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton didn't really focus on the issue of the judicial vacancy like candidate Trump did. And candidate Trump released a short list of potential nominations, and he promised to select from that, that list of nominees. Uh, Hillary Clinton did not do the same thing. And so it seems like during the election, the Democrats and the mass public didn't view that as very important, and their candidates didn't signal to, it, to them that it was important. And we move on, and then we get to the the confirmation votes of Neil Gorsuch and then later on Brett Kavanaugh especially, more polls come out that show Democrats are taking this issue more seriously and they, they're ranking them more important on these four-point uh, issue important scales. But it seems like that tends to then dissipate once that period is over. It seems like there's a period of high salience surrounding the court. Maybe this is a vacancy or maybe this is a very important decision that the Supreme Court has handed down. Uh, Democrats start to kind of peak up with their interest, but after that event passes, it seems like they kind of uh, go back down and underplay the issue, while Republicans, there's just a higher baseline um, level of consideration to uh, the judiciary that's not present among the Democrats. And I don't really think the Democrats have created kind of the, the party infrastructure that supports that. So within the Republican Party, you have things like the Federalist Society, the Judicial Crisis Network, and the Democrats don't really have analogs to that. They've 
started to develop the American, American Constitution Society, but that's not to the same level or to the same influence yet as the Federalist Society. So I think they're kind of lagging behind in kind of that institutionalization of the judiciary. Democrats have to connect court nominations to other issues that their base cares about. To make the court a salient issue for Republicans, it's very easy to tie logical preferences to the court. Issues of religious freedom, Second Amendment rights, those are all things we associate with the Supreme Court. So it's easy for Republicans to make that connection to voters. But for Democrats, it's a little bit harder to make those individual rights and individual logical claims to the Supreme Court. So I think they're trying to move it to these group issue items such as abortion, such as kind of affordable health care for lower income individuals. So I think they're trying to say, if we want to have these kind of benefits, if we want to have these policies such as the Affordable Care Act, if we want safe access to abortion, we need to have the Supreme Court. So I think what they're trying to do is tie the Supreme Court to issues that are already popular within their party to try to, you know, have that kind of rub off to attitudes on the Supreme Court. But interest groups have sent signals to voters that the judiciary is like other branches in policymaking. How we view the judiciary is really distinct from how we view other uh, political institutions. Surrounding the judiciary, there's what's called the myth of legalism. So it's the idea that a lot of members of the mass public really buy into the idea that the court is kind of apolitical and independent. Through our political science research, we know that's typically not true and that the court is a very political institution. So moving voters from that baseline perception that the Supreme Court is in apolitical independence takes some effort. So these interest groups, as they're broadcasting their messages, do so in a partisan or ideological way. And it just sends stronger cues to voters to pick up on, okay, we have to now incorporate the judiciary uh, and these messages into our partisan or ideological identities. And this will then kind of influence how they engage in politics. So I think as we see more of these kind of interest group participation and the interest groups are increasingly you know, playing television ads, playing ads on the internet to, to send voters messages, I think increasingly this will help individuals move from the perception that the Supreme Court is an apolitical independent institution and be better able to tie the judiciary into their partisan identities as they see fit to make these decisions on political engagement. Costellic says mobilization has moved before the hearings now, so they matter less. One interesting thing we find is that early on, mobilization was as likely to occur after the Judiciary Committee started its hearings as before. But in recent decades, that's flipped to now where mobilization occurs much more often before the hearings. And so why might that be? So, so one theory you might have is that committee hearings are a way to learn about the nominee, and then groups can react to what they learn. And that fits in more with the opportunistic story that we told that I mentioned early on, where groups are kind of reacting to events that occur during the nomination. But from today's perspective, right, committee hearings are not so interesting because they're not designed to find out anything about the nominee. They're more for position taking by senators, right? And it's kind of this elaborate song and dance, right? So, so there's no reason for groups to wait to see what happens during the hearings to decide whether to mobilize. From their perspective, it makes sense to more to engage in immediate mobilization, right? I think we've seen that with Barrett. You see groups on both sides kind of immediately mobilize, conservative groups saying confirm her, liberal groups saying it was not appropriate to move forward, given what happened with Garland in 2016, right? And so I don't think, you know, these hearings 
whether this the format and nature of these hearings will be different because of COVID, obviously. But I don't think anything that emerges from the hearings themselves will shape the nomination fight in any meaningful way. When scandals do come up now, Beta says they just further polarize voters. It seems like a lot of these issues will actually polarize how people view these candidates. So if you look for Republican support for Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed, 91% of Republicans in the CCS uh, sample wanted Brett Kavanaugh to be confirmed, and only 77% wanted to confirm Neil Gorsuch. So you have the more controversial nominee actually gaining more support among the Republican Party. And then if we were to look at the Democrats, 10% of them wanted Brett Kavanaugh confirmed, while about 30% of them wanted Neil Gorsuch confirmed. So it seemed like you have these allegations of sexual assault that just polarized the public. And it seems like those are filtered through partisan lenses where Republicans think this is some kind of hit job to derail a nomination. They don't perceive the sexual assault allegations as credible, and they want to kind of entrench themselves behind their candidate. They want to give that candidate greater support because they think that candidate's being supported. Whereas the Neil Gorsuch confirmation was relatively benign. There was, you know, the minor procedural issue about removing the filibuster, which maybe doesn't filter to the mass public very well, and also kind of the the broader procedural issue of holding the seat open. But that didn't seem to uh, create too much negative attention towards Neil Gorsuch. Kostelik says mobilization in hearings may now be a way to maintain membership and signal to supporters rather than influence Senate votes. One thing we do in the paper is we kind of look at you know, how often do groups mobilize across our time period? And a lot of the groups are what we call one-shotters, right? They're kind of small fly-by-night groups that emerge to oppose a particular nominee, and then they go away, or at least they're not covered again, right? And that's surely some type of expressive act against a particular nominee. But even for the repeat players, as we call them, like the NAACP or People for the American Way, right? Nomination fights are the way in which kind of, again, they show that they're in the arena, right? And we think that they're important venues to show that they're committed to the fight, both, you know, for their own sake and also to help get more funds and and, and please donors and so forth, right? So even if every nominee was perfectly predicted in terms of their failure or success, I don't know if much would change in terms of what we see in terms of mobilization politics today. And inside lobbying may have moved to the pre-nomination phase within party networks. I agree with you that Trump's process does signal inside lobbying success. And so our data can only capture the post-nomination phase of lobbying. So by kind of assumption or construction, it misses the influence that groups have on the selection process, uh, which is certainly important. But I guess what I would say is this. So it's clear now that groups, and particularly on the conservative side, now spend a lot of their efforts in trying to influence who the president selects to the court. But I think that this these efforts are more of a complement to the post-nomination lobbying phase than they are a substitute. And I would say this because the, we can see in the data that the levels of mobilization that we find for more recent nominees have not returned to the very low levels that we saw in the middle of the 20th century, right? So it's not, it's not the case that inside lobbying in the pre-nomination or selection phase is substituting for the ex post lobbying that we see in the mobilization phase. Instead, we think that groups are trying to influence both the, the process both at the selection phases and the nomination phases to maximize their overall impact on the process altogether. Polarization has come to the Supreme Court, but it's not clear how much group influence on nomination politics have caused that. 
it's now clear that the voting behavior of the justices is more reliable than it used to be, meaning that it's more likely that a Republican nominee will overall have a conservative voting record on the court and a liberal or Democratic nominee will is likely to have a overall liberal voting record on the court. That's not to say that Republican appointees never make liberal decisions and vice versa, but it used to be the case that justices were much less predictable in terms of their overall voting behavior, in part because presidents and interest groups did not care so much about the court. And so justices were not picked with particular ideological or group goals in mind. And so to the extent that groups like the Federal Society have placed a premium on picking reliable justices, that has surely contributed to the overall level of polarization that we see on the court itself. On the liberal side, right, we have very few data points to work with because there have only been five Democratic appointees since 1969, only four of which have been confirmed. But there's no reason to think that going forward that liberal interest groups will not place the same priority on making sure that Democratic presidents and senators confirm reliable liberal justices as well. Right. So to the extent that groups are influencing the process on the selection phase, now like we talked about, right, that again will help to ensure the overall polarization that we see on the court. Both agree that we're at a late stage of nominations as polarized for the foreseeable future. First, Betis. The end game, whereas, you know, we saw when uh, a vacancy occurred and President Trump stated his intention to fill that seat, what happened was Republicans in the Senate came out to support the nominee before Trump even announced who the nominee would be, right? So they're just kind of, as he's going to nominate someone who's acceptable to us, we don't even need to engage in some kind of vetting process. We're just going to say, okay, we trust him to make a, a choice. And Democrats, likewise, are opposition right away. We still haven't had the hearings. And so that's an important issue. And I think that's kind of where things are going, where it's just going to be very polarized. Uh, it's going to be very hard to confirm any nominee now when there's a a mismatch between the partisan identities of the president and Congress. So if you have a Republican president and a Democratic Senate, it's very unlikely that they'd confirm a nominee, just like we saw when President Obama held the White House, the Republicans wouldn't confirm a nominee. That could start to be the new norm, right? This sort of tit-for-tat game when you have to have unified government to confirm any Supreme Court nominee. I think the, the role of voters is probably tied up in that, right? Because again, if they're receiving messages from from their party, their parties, they're absorbing these messages from their parties or these interest groups that, and they incorporate that to their identities. Well, they're going to help perpetuate this, right? And it seems like it's a it's a context where it seems like things are just going to get more and more polarized. Kostelik agrees. Polarization is likely the permanent new normal for nominations. I think we've learned in general that Supreme Court nominations are now just extensions of the larger polarization that consumes American politics in every facet. And nothing that happened with the Gorsuch or Kavanaugh nominations suggests anything otherwise. Uh, And I don't think anything that will happen with the Barrett nomination will do anything other than that as well. And I think it's a depressing thought, but in the absence of some sort of deep structural change to nomination politics, such as, for example, the introduction of fixed terms for the justices rather than life tenure. This is indeed what the end stage of nominations may look like, at least for the next few decades, which means that in theory, we will only get justices confirmed during periods of unified government. And the nominees who do get confirmed will be surely committed and reliable ideologues on both sides. And this in turn probably does not 
bode well for the Supreme Court itself. So where do we go from here? Betis is looking at what voters want senators to ask, but he finds that partisans are switching sides based on whether they want nominees confirmed. What's, what's next for me and some of this area is diving a lot more into these process-oriented questions. So as I mentioned that there's a, a myth of legality surrounding the Supreme Court and judicial institutions, even though we know they're partisan and political. And a lot of times when we ask people how they kind of perceive these confirmations, we ask them what kind of questions are appropriate to ask a nominee. So should we only be asking them questions about their legal qualifications and their background, or should we be asking them questions about their partisan identities, their ideological positions, how they make policies as judges, their preferences for cases like Roe versus Wade, affirmative action, things like that. And so what I do is I analyze survey data on that, on those questions over time. And basically what I find is that people prefer a legalistic process when there's nominees that they support. So when there's a nominee that you are, agree with and you want to be confirmed, you think they should have a legalistic process. And then when you have a nominee that you disagree with and you want to sort of sabotage their nomination, you want them to have an extremely partisan and extremely political confirmation hearing. Because for the most part, we know that Supreme Court nominees are well-qualified individuals. They all come from elite backgrounds and have a great deal of experience. So if these confirmation hearings are just about gauging qualifications, almost any nominee is going to pass that bar. But if you move the confirmation hearings to be about partisan identities and ideological policies, it's much harder for nominees to clear that bar. So people who are opposed to nominees feel like this is a second dimension outside of that legal context where they can uh, hopefully force a nominee to maybe say something inappropriate and derail their nomination. Kostelik is now connecting group behavior and nominations to their attempts to directly influence the court. The biggest question we have in terms of studying interest group influence on the Supreme Court itself and how it relates to our the work, the work we did in this paper is we want to further explore the relationship between what the Supreme Court actually does and how this relates to group mobilization. So we're in the process of using amicus briefs, as you mentioned, this data was collected by Janet, ba uh, Janet Box Steffenmeyer, to figure out which groups attempt to lobby the court directly in particular cases. And then we want to connect that data to the data of nomination and mobilization groups that we used in this paper. And in particular, we may think we think that there may be certain right, watershed or important cases, like canonically Roe v. Wade, that spur particular groups to become active in judicial politics more generally. And we want to understand the connection between lobbying during the nomination process and lobbying the court directly in the form of amicus briefs. And finally, going forward, as you alluded to earlier, the role of the groups in the selection process will be really important going forward. And so it's an open question whether liberal groups will have the same role in shaping Democratic nominees that conservative groups have had with recent Republican presidents, in particular, President Trump. Also, will future Republican presidents continue the Trump model of essentially outsourcing nominations to the Federalist Society? These are questions we simply have to wait and see, but they're going to be highly crucial for understanding the influence of interest groups in Supreme Court politics going forward. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Jonathan Kostelik and Alex Betis for joining me. Please check out From Textbook Pluralism to Modern Hyperpluralism and The Supreme Court as an Electoral Issue, and then listen in next time.